This is Gene Lance on the Workers' Beat Extra. The subject of fascism just keeps coming up. This week's developments, written up in the Washington Post and elsewhere, indicate new gains for fascism in Europe. Far-right politicians won their elections in the Netherlands and in South America in Argentina. A new poll suggests that Donald Trump is seven points ahead of Joe Biden. In order to assess the danger and its consequences, it is important to understand some history and some political science as they pertain to methods of government. Note that I'm treating fascism only as a method of government. It is not a method of running an economy or something else. It's a method of government. And I'm only going to treat it as a part of the struggle for more democracy or from the other side for less democracy. In other words, lack of democracy, total lack of democracy, is one way to define fascism. So, look at some confusion it's, that is being introduced all the time. We, we confuse our religious uh, attitudes and our economic attitudes and our methods of government. And, and we get them all mixed up. In the United States, this confusion has been deliberately created to keep us from understanding. For example, our information sources regularly cross-mix economic systems, religious systems, and political systems. It's common to hear things like this, quote, we prefer Jesus and democracy to socialism, end quote. Thus, a religious symbol and a political system are counterposed to an economic system to the confusion of all. I'm going to leave the discussion about what Jesus prefers for some other time, and I'm also going to dispense with economic systems with only one sentence. Socialism and capitalism are the two economic systems worth worrying about today. But I'm not going to talk about economic systems. Now let's focus on political systems, ways of governing. There's three systems of governance that are being considered today. They can be distinguished by their degree of self-governance. They are total democracy, partial democracy, and fascism. If we had total democracy, each of us would be able to affect decisions to the, to the degree that those decisions affect us. In other words, you would have proportional say-so about everything that matters to you. Let's say that some legislation is being considered and it only affects 10 people and you're one of them. Then your vote should be one-tenth on that. So you should be able to affect legislation, affect governance to the extent that it affects you if we had total democracy. And that would include economic decisions and decisions on foreign policy. Such complete democracy may have sounded impossible to arrange in past centuries, but the internet now makes it relatively easy and close at hand. If we wanted to, for example, 
we could cast a meaningful vote every day on our phones. Currently in the United States, voters have practically no options concerning economic or foreign policy decisions. Did you ever get to vote on whether or not to go to war or to stop a war? Did you ever have a vote on which factories would remain open and which would close? How many people would get laid off? Did you ever get to vote on that? Voters in the United States have options on which of the two political parties shall rule. They get to vote on certain bond proposals or resolutions and other matters at the local level, but not on the economics and foreign policies that affect them so greatly. In other words, we have partial democracy. We started out in 1776 with practically no democracy. Only white men over 35 landowners were allowed to vote, and we fought to get more democracy. And from 1776 to about 1980, our level of democracy seemed to grow. We overcame slavery, poor men, and finally, women achieved suffrage, poll taxes were ended, some ballots were printed in various languages, the voting age was lowered, some racial discrimination was overcome. As political obstacles were overcome, it was tempting to say, that total democracy would eventually come to us one success at a time. Those who gave in to that temptation overlooked an important fact. Don't forget this fact. There is a class of very wealthy people who benefit from having less democracy, and they have no intention of giving up their rule, especially over critical items like foreign policy and economics. This class of people continues to fight to move democracy backward for their own benefit. That's why partial democracy is not likely to turn into total democracy one item at a time because there's an enemy class in this. There are people working from the other side. They might let us win some minor battles, and they might fight us hard on some other battles. But just the idea that we're just going to win total democracy one little thing at a time, that's daydreaming. Partial democracy has a wonderful effect on production. After partial democracy leaped ahead in England some centuries ago, their productive abilities soon outpaced the rest of the world because workers were more or less willing to work. And more or less willing workers are far more efficient than slaves or serfs like they had in the rest of the countries. Soon the productive England dominated much of the world and would continue to dominate until less democratic nations caught up or surpassed them. When productive powers became more equal between nations, their competitions turned into the inferno named World War I. During that war and because of it, two controversial new possibilities emerged. One was total democracy, the other was fascism. 
1932, under Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the United States improved their partial democracy and seemed headed toward total democracy. In the same period, Germany started moving the other direction, toward the total absence of democracy. Now you might want to ask, why and how did those two countries diverge at that point? People either love or hate the Soviet Union, and I have no intention of debating it here. I will assert only that it offered the possibility of total democracy. People were thinking about total democracy, and they were talking among themselves about total democracy. In the Soviet Union, it was their intention that the people would have control over everything, including foreign policy and economics. It is important to mention that their productivity shot upwards like crazy as they struggled toward total democracy. The worldwide economic disaster that began in 1929 discredited the older political systems and millions flocked to the possibility of total democracy. The reactionary class that I mentioned a while ago, the reactionary class was horrified. In the United States, the reactionary class agreed to some restrained and temporary improvements in democracy as long as they were still in charge. In Germany, the reactionary class agreed to Nazi power again as long as they were still in charge. The reason that the reactionaries in the two nations took different courses had to do with their different economic situations. The United States had many options. The Germans had only one, war against the nations that constrained them, the nations that contained them since the First World War. The reactionary rulers were taking risks with both forms of governments. They had to because the forces of total democracy were, were getting very strong and getting stronger in all nations. In neither case, however, did the reactionaries intend to give up their rule completely, and neither of them did. Now I want to make a very important point. Fascism is a choice. The wealthiest Germans temporarily embraced Hitler. The wealthiest Americans temporarily backed Franklin Delano Roosevelt. But look at Spain. The Spanish military, with the help of the Catholic Church and military forces from fascist countries, installed a dictator, Generalissimo Francisco Franco. It is especially important to examine the case of fascist Spain. Through such an examination, one can see clearly that fascism is a choice of re the reactionary rulers. German fascism ended in flames. America's New Deal democracy was eroded and is still eroding away. But Spain simply gave up fascism and returned to partial democracy. There wasn't a war. There wasn't a revolution. Nothing like that ended fascism in Spain. After Franco died, the reactionary rulers decided that partial democracy would improve their productivity. As with England in the 16th century, partial democracy improves productivity. 
Fascism, with less willing workers, retards productivity. So the Spanish ruling class elected to have Spain. They chose to have fascism in Spain. And they also chose later on to give up fascism in Spain. Fascism is a choice. One can look further than Spain and see a number of nations that have embraced fascism when they were threatened by total democracy. After the threat passed, after they killed off the people that were threatening them or jailed them or drowned them or dropped them out of helicopters, after the threat passed, they resumed partial democracy to raise their productivity. There's some good examples. Argentina, for example, was fascist. Now it's not. Brazil was fascist. Now it's not. Indonesia was fascist. No, it's not. And Chile, it's still going on. Fascism does not occur naturally. Natural social progress would suggest that partial democracy increases productivity. More democracy increases productivity more, and total democracy would increase productivity to its highest levels. Fascism retards that progress and leads to less productivity. Fascism is unnatural, but it is a choice of the reactionary rulers, the wealthiest class, when they are threatened by the forces of total democracy. So I hope I've made it clear that fascism is a choice that is made by the reactionary rulers still under capitalism. It's not a change in economics. It's a change in governance system and it is a choice of the reactionary rulers. Now, how do you stop fascism? As long as there is a reactionary ruling class, they will have the option of fascism and they may choose it when they will. They have to be removed from power. This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra.